Good morning, everybody. Turn in your Bibles, if, if you have it with you, to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be in um, verses 6 through 10, just a few verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back provided for you there, next to the sound booth. Please grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, keep it. We want you to have it and cherish it and read it. Um, but as you're turning there, let me just uh, give you a little bit of a rundown, a review of where we've been. Um, as we've been studying this book of Galatians, we're nearing the end of that, of that study. Um, next week will be the last, last sermon in that series. And the title of our series has been Galatians, No Other Gospel. And that's because the main issue that Paul's confronting this letter is that the Galatian churches had fallen for a false gospel. And the purpose of his letter is to urge them to return to the truth of the real gospel that had been previously proclaimed to them and that they've actually accepted it's a message that Paul himself didn't invent. He didn't come up with it on his own. It was given to him by the risen Christ. And he sums it up in Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 16, where it says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So the Gentile converts... Uh, in Galatia, had been had been deceived by these Judaizers, which were the uh, which were the uh, 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 the Jewish believers, and, and they were they were deceived into thinking that they needed to add circumcision to their faith in Christ in order to be justified, which is to be declared righteous before God. So their salvation from sin was the basis of of this idea of faith plus works, faith and the law, and adherence to the strict moral law of God. But Paul destroys that heresy right up front, and he reminds them throughout the course of this letter that they are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. But that faith, as we've seen, is, is also not left alone, because good works follow as a result of the Spirit's regenerating work in the believer's heart. So, just to be very clear, good works don't save you, but they are a necessary result of the salvation that the Spirit has done in the, in, in, the, in the believer's heart, that work of regeneration, which is an act of actual resurrection from, dead, from a dead heart to a living one. And we saw last week that the gospel both saves us and also places demands on us, both personally and also in the context of, of community. I'm commanded by God to love others. And so I have the responsibility, not simply to just avoid doing wrong, not to just to do no harm, but I'm also commanded to actively do good. And that's not solely out of, out of obligation, or certainly not out of self-justification, for sure. We work hard, we, we, we exert every effort, we work hard to do good works, not to save ourselves, but as a working out of our salvation, as Paul reminds us in, in Philippians chapter 2 to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So that transformed heart, our new transformed heart now, because of the, the Spirit's work, now gives us these, these new sincere desires to, to glorify God and to love other people. So to put this another way, we, we demonstrate and we declare the gospel with the full certainty, certainty of knowing these things. One, I belong to Jesus Christ that I am justified by faith alone in Christ alone. 
Number two, I demonstrate and declare the gospel with a certainty and security of knowing that I'm loved by God. And that I'm, no long, that I'm not only just reconciled to God because of Christ, I'm now his blood-bought child. And I'm heirs with Christ. Inherited of all the spiritual blessings that come with that. Number three, I have a family. Believers are not isolated children. I'm not an only, only child. I have brothers and sisters that care about me and I care about them. And we're committed to each other's mutual well-being. Their edification, our, our pursuit of holiness together. Number four, I demonstrate and declare the gospel with a certainty and security of knowing that I have the Spirit of Christ now living in me, empowering me, guiding me into greater holiness by illuminating the application of the truths of God's Word to my heart. One word, sanctification. That's what it means. To grow in holiness and in, in maturity, Christian maturity in Christ. And lastly, I demonstrate and declare the gospel with the certainty and security of knowing that I will see a harvest that by God's grace, I will see the results of the faithfulness in glimpses now, maybe here, but more fully, much more later in the future when Christ returns. And we're going to see that um, this, this morning in a little more detail. So let's turn our Bibles and our attention to our Bibles now um, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to look, um, we're going to study that together this morning. So first, let's read the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Let the one who was taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this morning we're going to look at the scripture, and our lesson is going to come from these few verses. And we're going to look through, first, um, that we ought to value the word of God in verse 6. Then we'll turn in verses 7 through 8 to the fact that we ought to fear God. And then lastly, in verses 9 through 10, that we are commanded to do good. So let's first look at valuing the Word of God in verse 6. The first thing that Paul instructs is that Bible teachers should have the support from those who are being taught. There are those that God has specifically gifted. Um, He's given them the ability, not by their own strength, but as a gift. We all have spiritual gifts, but some of us are given the, the gift of teaching the Word of God. And here Paul doesn't explicitly use the word pastor or elder or shepherd like he does in other passages of scripture um he's a little bit but but i think um it's 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 safe to say that he's referring to them not specifically not only to them but but he has them in mind he's highlighting that this is a particular task of the pastor elder and the teacher in the church um here we call pastor elders pastor elders because that's um that's what we call them here at King's Chapel, and all the different roles um, that, it, that those words mean um, are, that are in Scripture, they're all synonymous with the same, same form, same office. But he's saying in other passages in 1 Timothy, he was a little bit more explicit. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Um, and later on, first, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul goes on to say that, making it clear that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So what Paul wants to make clear is that those who are faithful teachers of the word of God 
their faithful ministers of the gospel should be financially supported by those who are under their spiritual care. With this qualification, provided that they are teachers that are teaching the one true and pure gospel, not like the heretical Judaizers that he's combating in this, in this, uh, in this book, in this letter. And so the question is, why is it important that those in the church, those who are taught by, by teachers, support those who are teachers? Paul, as we know if we look through his different epistles, was very acquainted with hard work that comes with studying Scripture and teaching Scripture. And then add to that the necessity of, of having to work hard to make, to make a living. Those, those can, be, can be a crushing weight. So, so not supporting... Um, the material needs of pastors and teachers can, can create this, this heavy burden. As we looked at last week, we ought to bear each other's burdens. But Paul is, is not just concerned for their own well-being, although he is. The ulti- his ultimate aim is not that we see that they need to be supported. It's that the ultimate aim for our giving is for the furtherance of the gospel. And so the gospel can t- continue to move forward. Don't get me wrong, pastors are just like everybody else. We all have real-world uh, issues and problems and needs. We have to eat. We have children to take care of. We have uh, financial obligations like student loans and mortgages to pay, that kind of thing. So Paul, is, he's certainly concerned with their well-being, for sure. But I, I think it would be short-sighted to see that that's the only thing that he's concerned about. He's telling us that we really ought to value the gospel for what it is. That it's the power of God's salvation to everyone who believes, as he says in Romans chapter 1. So, the principle we learn here is that spirit-led people of God value the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And that means teachers who, who are teaching the Word of God should take seriously the, the, uh, the work that it takes to study God's Word and to faithfully expound it to others under their care. And at the same time, it also means that those who are being taught being trained in righteousness, should recognize that the transforming power of the word. And in that should be the, the motive for their supporting and their generous giving to pastors and teachers who are, who are teaching them. What Paul knew, and I think we all ought to realize and understand and be reminded of, is that the God's word is indispensable to the church. Right? There's no replacement for the regular, unhindered preaching of the word of God. And so, by providing for pastors' material needs, it frees them up to do just that. But I think it's also good that we're reminded, because of where we live and the culture in which we're living in, that this is not just simply a service that's, uh, that's payment for a service rendered. Right? This is not just a, a, like a business transaction. That's, that's what we're used to in our day and time today, that everything has unfortunately become a commodity in our culture, and that includes... This uh, exchange between student and teacher, you know, especially at the academic level. So what Paul's describing here is something very different than that. He's describing a, a relationship, a partnership. In fact, the word, which I think is interesting, Paul used the word here for sharing is actually the Greek word koinoneo, which we probably heard the word koinonia, which is where we get the... Uh, understanding of spiritual fellowship among believers. So there's a mutual sharing in. There's this mutual partnership and partnering together 
around the Word of God. And the church is, is a community of spirit-led men and women who live under that authority, under the authority of the Word of God, and love His Word, love each other, and they live on mission together. So what we're seeing here that Paul's describing is that both the teacher and the student are gifted to one another. They're gifted to one another for each other's mutual edification and for ultimately the glory of God as we do that together. So the question is, do we value the faithful preaching of the Word of God? What we spend our time and our money on indicates what we value. Do we also regularly pray and encourage our pastors and community, community group leaders or those who are teaching us the Word of God? Or maybe when it comes to giving, you give out of compulsion, rather out of a, a true, sincere desire to lovingly bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in love. Let me say that I'm very blessed to be part of the King's Chapel family because I, I think this church really, truly understands the importance of a gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting preaching. And you give generously year after year so that, that the pastors here can be freed up to preach the Word of God, to use the gifts that they've been given, to preach the Word of God, to shepherd God's people. So I am incredibly thankful to be part of this community in that way. So uh, what we're taught there in, this, in that one verse is that we ought to value the Word of God. But then Paul is going to move from, from this principle of supporting those who teach the Word of God with, with another, uh, another, another principle, another law, and that's the, the divine law of sowing and reaping. And he's going to use this illustration of harvesting as a way of referring back to something he's talked about earlier, which is the, the, the competing desires between the, the desires of the flesh and and the spirit that's within us for those who are believers. So sowing and reaping is, is this law that Paul's referring to that's built really into the, the fabric of the created order, much like any other law, like the law of gravity is. Right? The law itself is not king, God's king, right? Because he's the one who established it. He authored this rule, and he did it with the purpose of uh, showing us that it reflects who he is. It reveals also his, his plan for the most valued of all his creation, which is human beings. And what this principle is, is that what you sow, you will reap. So what you plant is what you're ultimately going to harvest. And Paul is saying that this is both true agriculturally, but it's also true spiritually. So I'm not a farmer, by any means, but I'm pretty sure that if you plant corn, you're going to reap corn, not pumpkins, something else. So the kind of plant that you sow is the kind that you're going to reap. Also, as of one who is planting corn, if you're watering it and tending to your fields properly, you wait long enough, you're going to inevitably reap corn stalks. It's going to happen. It's it's a definite thing that's going to take place. Reaping is going to come as it follows sowing. So likewise, spiritually, there are consequences to our actions. So we're all going to be held personally responsible for the decisions we make in, our, in this life. That's what Paul's 
trying to let us know about, that our decisions are going to fall into one or two categories. One, whether you're sowing to the flesh, the desires of the flesh, or we're going to sow to the Spirit. So sowing to the flesh means that I'm feeding those sinful desires that are within me. It's, it's utter self-absorption. It's, it's, and it comes forth, it's manifested in lots of different ways. We just look back one chapter, in chapter 5, we can see that Paul gives us a laundry list. It's not an exhaustive list, but he gives us a, a pretty good list of sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, uh, sorcery, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, so on and so forth. So sowing to the flesh is this idea of, of utter self-indulgence and living as if there's no God, right? And in reality, what Scripture teaches is that we are created by God and we are ultimately accountable to Him. Not to ourselves, not to anyone else, and not to some impersonal law. And as verse 7 states, that to live as though we're not accountable to God, as if there is no God, is both self-deception, and it's also mockery of God's authority. So we are deceived because the pleasure of this sinful self-indulgence, it feels good, it does, for a time. It seems like it fulfills what we're longing for, that it's somehow life-giving to us. So as John Stott says, what I think is, is a great uh, way of remembering is that, that we, we, instead of, we coddle sin rather than crucifying it. But in reality, what that's going to lead to is corruption. And what Paul, the word that Paul's using here for corruption is meant to bring to mind a decomposing body. It's meant to, to signify or help us see that in our minds, the imagery of a putrid corpse. And there's, there's, a, there's a breathtaking finality to that as we're thinking about that. There's no coming back from a decomposing body. So the consequence, is he's telling us, of a lifelong pursuit of self-indulgence is going to be the eternal consequence of the fires of hell. And Jesus talked about this often in, in his parables. In Matthew chapter 13 is one of those. We can not have time to look at that today, but um, about the, 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 the unquenchable fires of hell as a result of living for self. And what I want to point out is that verses 7 to 8 are run contrary to what we see in our culture today. Our culture believes that we can, we can sow whatever seeds we want without any consequence. That, that I can, if you're even going to use the word sin, I can sin with impunity. And we want the desires of the flesh to satisfy those cravings that we have for which are good, good appetites, good cravings for, for happiness, for contentment, for purpose and meaning in life. But the problem is those, those are not filled by anything other than God himself, the one who created us. And so attempting to somehow sidestep God to, to get around, around him and accountability to him is, is mockery. It, it, it's, it's mocking God. It's, it's blaspheming God. And it, it, it's going to be a rude awakening when, when Christ comes back one day and with his perfect white-hot justice. Now, we, we all value justice. There's something, I think, that's part of the Imago Dei, that we're all made in the image of God, that we all value justice, especially for ourselves, or and if not just for ourselves, but for those that we know, for those we love, even sometimes vicariously for, for a victim that we see in the news. And when we don't see, we don't see justice happening, it discourages us, right? It, it, it makes us 
become even furious at times. When we see like a, a criminal get off scot-free, it, it, it angers us, and rightfully so. Why do you th- think that you know, revenge films are so popular nowadays? I like watching myself, Taken, Death Wish. I mean, you know, who wants to see the, who wants to see the bad guy get, to reap what he sows, right? And when we don't see justice prevail, that's when we, we think, maybe I don't take matters in my own hands. I think that's a very stunted view of justice. It's a godless view of justice. The question is, do we, do we really have a true, robust theology of God's sovereignty, that, that He is in control of all things, and that, and that He is the one who's, who has the true definition of justice, and it's going to happen in His timing? Do we see ourselves as the villains who have gotten away with mocking God for too long? There's going to be a day when those who mock God will stand before Him and have to give an account. And that should induce fear. There's nothing wrong with fear in that, in that regard. We should fear. That, that should cause fear in the heart of a, of a rebellious sinner who's sowing to his flesh. And on, on that day, the question is going to be, are you going to receive the just penalty for your sin? Or, or are you going to receive mercy because Jesus has received the penalty of the sin that you deserve, of the, ju- the penalty that you deserved for your sin on the cross in your place for you. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I love you, but I hope you feel the full weight of that, of that truth. Have you, have you just deceived yourself into thinking that there are no consequences to your actions, to, to your decisions, to, to this, your sin? And I, I would implore you to, to, this morning to turn to Jesus that he is the just judge who also offers mercy to all those who repent, who, who believe in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, his son. So now let's, let's turn to how the one who reaps to the spirit is very different from the one who work, who's going to reap to the sinful desires of the flesh. That person who reaps the spirit, there is no terror of God's judgment. As Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there's, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Instead, the, the Christian lives in, in a different kind of fear, a reverent fear, a wonder, and a joy in God. Because they, they can welcome the day of the Lord when He will come back because eternal life is going to be the harvest. Not based on our own works, but because of Jesus Christ. The Spirit-led person isn't afraid of justice, but, but yearns for justice, learns for a, an accurate understanding of, of true justice. He recognizes that even if it doesn't happen now, it's going to happen in God's time. Right? He trusts in God's sovereignty. Justice and judgment will come in due season, and so he sows the Spirit, not to get out of judgment, not to attain eternal life by his own striving, Sowing to the Spirit is, is not simply just trying harder, that I'm going to somehow get myself out of, the, out of the hole that I've dug. But sowing to the Spirit is, is not a human effort. It's, it's instead the, it's the evidence and, the, and also the result of the Spirit's regenerating work in the life of the, of the believer. It's, it's, it's supernatural work. It's supernatural. So those who sow to the Spirit they have already recognized their deadness in sin, their, their insufficiency to save themselves. 
And they have repented of sin. They've, they've trusted in the person and work of Jesus. And now, as a spirit-filled child of God, they, they, they wrestle daily they, with, to, dis, to, de, de, to depend on the Spirit, to empower them, to kill sin, and, and, and to cultivate internal gospel growth, which is this fruit of the Spirit. The only one that can sow to the Spirit is the one who has the Spirit living in them. And that person will walk by the Spirit, will be led by the Spirit, and will keep in, in step with the Spirit, not perfectly, not perfectly, but faithfully. It's not easy. It's difficult because it requires self-denial. There's, there's, still, uh, there's still a wrestling going. There's still uh, combat that's being done daily. But that self-denial that's necessary starts with asking the Spirit to energize us, to energize our new nature and, and to, do, to deplete the desires of the flesh, the sinful desires of the flesh. Personally, that's something I'm reminded to every morning when I wake up because I'm not what you would call a morning person. Okay, just not one of those. My dad is didn't get that trade, didn't inherit that trade, unfortunately. So I find it hard. I mean, maybe some of you can resonate. I find it hard to get out of bed most mornings, and I'm probably my most self-centered self between the hours of six a.m. and eight a.m. That's just just where I'm at. That's when I'm I'm tired. I'm grumpy. That's when I'm very thoroughly self-focused, and 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 just to on top of all that, that's when all of a sudden all the the sins of the day before and flooding into my mind when I'm, when I'm feeling that way, so it's great timing, you know, for that to happen. So that's when I'm reminded that, you know, I was maybe a little bit impatient with my children, maybe even unnecessarily harsh to them the day before, or, or maybe I, that unkind thinking I had toward a, a person um, comes, you know, flooding back to my mind, or maybe I turn to my phone or I turn to Netflix as an escape rather than taking time to speak with my wife about her day, encourage her, pray with her. I would be wrong to think that, you know, that's just my personality. That's just how I'm, I'm, I'm wired, that that happens to me in the morning time. But in reality, I should be realizing and be reminded of that this is, this is a spiritual battle that's going on within me right now. And I have a choice. Either I'm going to, I'm going to justify my sin... Or I'm going to sow to the Spirit. I'm going to repent of the sin. I'm going to lean on Christ. I'm going to revel in the gospel. And that's just one small example, but I think that shows us that sowing in the Spirit is, is a daily activity. It's a daily surrender. From the, from the very moment that we wake up to the, to the time that we, we lie down in the evening, we're dependent that entire time upon the power of the Holy Spirit to, to live God-glorifying lives. Not by ourselves, but leaning on Him. And this is what I love about the Apostle Paul in this passage. Is that he knows that the war between the flesh and the spirit is tiresome. It's wearisome. And so he offers us encouragement in verse 9. As he tells us also to do good. So we should value the word. We should, we should fear God. And we should do good. And, 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 and while we're doing good, Paul's telling us, don't give up. Don't give up doing good because eternal life is the ultimate harvest. John Piper reminds us uh, about this, this wearisome task of doing good. He says this, quote, Human beings have a, a remarkable and sad capacity for getting tired of wonderful things. Isn't that true? 
Almost every one of you can think of something you were enthusiastic, enthusiastic about recently, but now the joy is faded. The thrill is gone. Your first day of vacation on the coast, the sunset was breathtaking and made you so happy you could sing. But by the end of your stay, you hardly noticed it anymore. Vacationers get tired of sunsets. Millionaires get tired of money. Kids get tired of toys. And Christians get tired of doing good. End quote. And doing good here, Paul's, it's, it's a loaded term that Paul's using here because it's, it's encompassing all of what he has previously taught in this, in this letter and what he's instructed about what it means. He's, in summation, what he's saying by doing good is that it me, this is what it means to do good, is to, is to live as a person who is justified by God through faith alone in Christ alone, who has a new identity as an adopted child of God that is now freed from the oppression of the law and from the power of sin to obey the law of love by the power of the Holy Spirit. So doing good is simply displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not for myself, not, not displaying the fruit of as if I need to do this myself, but in the context of community. It, it's, it's relational and missional. So to make the fruit of the Spirit an exercise in, in, in some kind of personal piety is to miss Paul's point completely. Right, the Spirit-led person has a supernatural capacity and a desire to live for the glory of God and toward other people. His life or her life is now centered around meeting others material and spiritual needs. That at King's Chapel, it's what we call demonstrating and declaring the gospel. Or to put it another way, it means that we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in word and in deed. And that's the mission of God that we've been called to as His church. That, and Paul then tells us who, is, who the audience is, who are the recipients, who are the community that he's talking about. He says simply and explicitly to do good to everyone especially those who are of the household of faith. But when we look at that list of the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't take long to realize just how difficult, how hard it is to do good, right? Let me give you a little example. It's more of a little exercise, so, so th- do this. Think of a person that you, that you know that is difficult to love. I'm sure it comes flooding right into your head and mind, right? Probably more than one person, but just think of one person. This person now... Do this. Fill in the blank here. This person is unlovable because... Fill in the blank, right? So, because of that, just being around them zaps my joy and my inner peace so that I'm impatient. I say unkind words to or about them. I find reasons to be unfaithful or to lie to them. And rather than being gentle and civil, I argue with them incessantly. And when I think of them or I'm with them, or I see them pop up on my, on my news feed, it becomes almost impossible to control my feelings of anger, resentment, or discouragement. That's just one person that we're just talking about. So, the, so, so Paul's telling us to do good to everyone. He's saying, don't give up, but persevere in gospel-centered good deeds. That sounds exhausting and impossible because it is. By all human standards, it is impossible. Because if our good works are fueled by legalism, 
by a strict adherence to, to, to the law, whether it's my own standard or even God's standard itself, we're going to lose heart. We're going to give up. It's going to zap us our joy. And, and antinomianism or license is no fuel at all because it just is going to ex- give us an excuse to continue in our selfishness. So the only way we're not going to grow tired or bored of doing good is to be supernaturally strengthened to do that. And our source for doing good and our source for persevering in doing good is the same source. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that means asking Him regularly to to make our justification, make our, our adoption, our freedom in Christ real to us again. And that's when we see our need to display gospel love to everyone. We who are loved by God and have experienced the grace and forgiveness of God have the privilege of then reflecting that to the entire world. And when we realize just how good God has been to us through His Son Jesus, how can we withhold doing good to others? Is your neighbor unlovable? So are you. Right? Are they hostile to the gospel? So were you. But God changed all that when His Spirit applied the work of Christ and His saving work to your heart. And He awakened in you, in your heart, a recognition of the gravity of your sin, but also the extent of His grace to cover all of your sin. And the Spirit-led child of God wants, wants to see others wants to see them adopted also into the family of God. Or to use Paul's, Paul's words here in this, in this verse, into the household of faith. One of the marks of a true believer is how they are going to relate with the body of Christ. If you love Christ, you're going to love His church. Yes, we're, we're a bunch of flawed people, that's true, but we're also all blood-bought children of God. And when you're saved, you were adopted by God into His family. Not as an only child, you have brothers and sisters to love and care for, and who love and care for you. And everyone should be loved, as Paul is saying, everybody that we encounter, but there's also a special love for the family of God. There's a priority for those within your family. And just as a reminder, as I give a little bit of qualification, genuine love can, and it it does require wisdom. It requires discernment. It means sometimes confronting a brother or sister when they've been caught in sin, like we saw last week, or, or to bear each other's burdens, or to give encouragement, or to provide for financial support or relief when, when a person needs that, when someone in your family needs that. So before we act, a good rubric is to ask ourselves the question, what's ultimately for this person's good? How, how can I encourage this person to greater godliness? One of the reasons I think we grow tired of doing good is that we don't see the results that we're looking for, that we've been hoping for, in the time and manner in which we think we ought to see them. Our culture has conditioned us, unfortunately, to, to, to think that we can invest very little and get a great reward. It's like an entrepreneurial culture that we're living in now. Give little, harvest much. So obviously we become very discouraged when we don't get the payback that we're expecting. Paul's encouraging us to remain steadfast in doing good. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Don't abandon the mission. 
He's admonishing the Galatians and all of us here today to remain faithful, to hold to the gospel, to have an eternal perspective. To realize that in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Remember what we learned earlier about the agricultural harvesting, that there's always a lapse of time between the sowing and the reaping. But the harvest is certain. One day we will see a harvest. We may get glimpses of it here, but one day we'll see the full, we'll see the full results of our good deeds. And I think that's what's going to keep us fueling our worship for eternity, being with Christ and also being stunned and astonished when we look about all how God has used us for His glory while we were here on earth. A good example of what it means to slow, sow and then have to wait for reaping is in the life of William Carey. He was one of the first modern missionaries to India and he, he arrived in the subcontinent in 1793 and he began teaching the Bible to anybody who would listen. And he did this for seven years without winning so much as one convert to Christ. And obviously he got discouraged. I mean, who wouldn't? And on one occasion, he wrote back to his family. He said in his letter, he said, quote, I feel as a farmer does about his crop. Sometimes I think the seed is springing and thus I hope. A little time blasts all and my hopes are gone like a cloud. They were only weeds which appeared. Or if a little corn sprung up, it quickly dies because either it's choked by weeds or parched by the sun of persecution. Yet I still hope in God and will go forth in His strength. End quote. So he got weary and doing good from time to time, but he refused to give up. And in 1800, seven years after he, he began his mission in India, he began to see, he began to see the, the, the harvest of what he had sown. He baptized his first Hindu convert on the Ganges River. And that was the beginning of, of much great harvest among the Indian people. So our, our hope as Christians is in the certainty of the harvest. But that shouldn't make us lackadaisical. There's urgency in Paul's voice here. We oughtn't miss that. What's interesting here is that he uses the same word, kairos, the Greek word kairos, in verses 9 and 10 for in due season and when he says opportunity. And when he's saying opportunity, he doesn't mean that to try to fit it into your day somehow or at your earliest convenience do good to others and everyone. He's saying that now is the opportune time to demonstrate and to declare the gospel. Right? He's linking the time of the harvest with the time that we have here on earth. That we await the harvest, the, the way in which we await the harvest is by making the best use of the current time that we have to do good. All, all of us ought to be remembered that our lives are fleeting. So while we have opportunity, let us faithfully fulfill the mission that God has, has called us to, to his, as His church. We should also remember that, that God uses us to advance His kingdom, but ultimately it's not up to our own efforts. Our efforts are not in vain, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but it's really God who's doing the fueling and the fulfilling of the work of redemption. Now, we're called to participate in that. We're used as a means of, in which that is, is, is happening we are called to live faithfully while we're here, to share the gospel in both word and in deed, and then we're also then to leave the results to God. And when we rest, which is a gift from God to rest, we can know that God's working all things out for His glory 
and for, for our good, for the good of his people. So my question is, have you grown weary in doing good? Have you lost sight of that future hope? Do you suffer from a lack of urgency, maybe? I just want to remind us all, myself included this morning, that let's remember that both our strength to endure and also the, the assurance of the harvest comes from trusting in what Jesus has already accomplished, what he accomplished in his perfectly lived life, in his vicarious atoning death on the cross, and in his resurrection from the grave. Jesus was the only one who lived a perfect, spirit-filled life. He was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And though he was tempted in every way which we are tempted, he did not succumb to temptation. Instead, he trusted in the Father's will, even though it led him to the cross where he, he took upon himself the sins of the entire world and experienced the wrath of God that we all deserve. But... As the psalmist says, as we're reminded in Acts, that Jesus, his soul was, did not descend into Hades. He, he, he didn't, his, 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 the Holy One did not see corruption. Jesus' body lie in the grave for three days, but it didn't rot there. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus rose from the dead and he defeated sin. He defeated Satan and he defeated death. And Jesus has now given us the same spirit to empower us to live and to love all those that we come in contact with, especially those who are the family of God. And that same spirit is the one that's also sealing us for the day for our final redemption. And we're going to hear on that day these words, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Father, we thank you for the great love that you showed for us. When we were in bondage to sin, when we were in our greatest sense of selfishness, had no desire or urgency to turn to you, to repent of our sins, we were running headlong to hell, and yet you came and you pursued us through your Son. Jesus, we thank you that you fulfilled the Father's plan, the, the plan of, of the triune God that existed from eternity past, and you came and fulfilled that by living the perfect life that we could never live and dying as our substitute on the cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sins, and then not staying in the grave but rising from the dead. And then ascending on high as the, the tr- as the reality that that payment is certain as a receipt of, of the debt that you paid on our behalf. And so I, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would remember that, that the gospel would continue to, uh, we would sow to the Spirit, we would revel in the gospel that... Uh, in, the, in the times of despair, in times of resentment, times of hardship, that we would not lose hope or not lose sight or grow weary in doing well, but that you would send us your Spirit's power afresh. Send to us one another to encourage each other to continue to strive and to remember the future hope that we have. One day will we see you face to face.
We look forward to that day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.